Hello, and welcome to the Human Entropy Podcast, a podcast where we can discuss the chaos, the adversity, and the triumph that is being human. I'm Felicia Parker. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm passionate about sharing the resilience I see in other people that inspire me to chase what makes me feel most alive. This is a place to be a friend, a place to encourage, and a place to challenge. This is Human Entropy. In this episode, we're discussing something that, in my opinion, isn't talked about often enough. Purity culture. What is purity culture? In my experience, it was the youth group I grew up in. It was the belief that being sexually pure is what gave me value. It was the endless events in our church that taught us, as women, that we were responsible for the way men looked at us or thought about us. It was the hidden message that if I lost my purity, I lost points with God. First and foremost, I just want to express that I'm still overcoming and reframing what I've told myself for 25 years about the do's and don'ts of sexuality. But I'm thrilled to be on the path that I'm on, and that path is full of grace and liberty as opposed to shame and judgment. I also want to lay down the foundation that I have no ill bone in my body towards the church I grew up in or the people who had a large hand in helping mold my young mind when I was a preteen and a teenager, even though I do recognize the things in which I was taught to believe on this topic and how it negatively impacted me. That being said, it's been really interesting being an adult for the last seven years in a world that exists outside of the purity culture bubble that I grew up in, and being challenged and encouraged to break away from shame and walk in freedom. I took the time to reach out to several of my friends from back home who grew up in the same church purity culture that I did, and many friends I now know shared their experiences with me too. With their permission, I'm anonymously sharing some of their thoughts on the subject. I definitely put my purity on a pedestal because I thought it made me a good Christian. In turn, I also thought that if I lost it, I would lose good Christian points. If my boyfriend and I were having struggles with purity in our relationship, I felt like I had to work on my relationship with the Lord. I think the biggest blessing and the biggest curse about it was the community. It was something that I needed. But then, when I came out, people stopped talking to me. The message that that sent me was that not only if I didn't live by those standards that I wasn't important, but also that I wasn't important to God. We were taught that it was our responsibility to not be taken advantage of. We were taught that it was our responsibility what a man does with his thoughts and his actions. I remember people saying that if you had sex before marriage, the marriage bed was broken. For the first two months of our marriage, I was always looking for things to be wrong. And any little thing that did go wrong, I would allude it to, it's because we didn't wait. I wish someone in a place of power or authority would have told me that it was okay for me to have the feelings that I did. I went through puberty earlier than a lot of girls my age. I felt guilty when I noticed boys looking at my chest, and I felt guilty for causing a reaction. I've been diagnosed with vaginismus, which makes it extremely difficult to have sex. I wasn't able to wear tampons until late into college because of my body's reaction to something going into my vagina. I was always told sex was bad. Being proud of your body was bad. Attention to your body is bad. Cover up. Don't tempt boys. Purity is next to godliness, basically. And then bam, you're married and suddenly everything is fine, except it's not. 25 years of ingrained no's doesn't just disappear when you sign a marriage license. It's a long process to become okay with sex being okay. These are just a few of the stories I've heard. To be honest, when I was growing up being taught all of these things, I never questioned any of it. 
It wasn't until moving away from home, starting a new life in a new city at a new church, whose focus every week was on Jesus and not on my sexual purity, that I started to think and see things differently. This is a longer episode, but I think it's important. I read a book called Pure by a woman named Linda K. Klein last summer, and it changed my life. It opened my eyes. So much so that when I got the idea to start this podcast, she was at the top of my dream guest list. What's really cool is that she agreed to do an interview. So, here it is. I'm really excited that I get to talk to you about all the things. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, me too. I'm really, I'm really delighted. It sounds like we're going to have a good conversation. Yeah. So I just thought I would tell you how I discovered your book, what it's done for me, because it's done so many things, how crazy I am, because I tell all my friends, you need to read it, you need to read it, you need to read it. <laughs> I started going to therapy when I was 22. Oh, no, I was 23. So I've been going almost two years now. And I started going for body image issues, actually. But therapy for me has turned into so much more than that. And somehow we found out together that the root of me seeing my body in this false way or in this super negative, shameful way was very tied to sexual shame that I'd been carrying for a very long time. So because we figured out that sexual shame was the root of me seeing my body in this awful way, she gave me her copy of your book, which was really nice of her to do and very vulnerable because it had her own handwritten notes in it. And wow. yeah, but she let me borrow it. And like I just told you, I didn't put it down <laughs> at all. Um, and I, I want to say, I mean, I have the book and I have been the past few days that we've been emailing. I've been trying to find the one sentence that... I first read, and I think it's in your introduction that was like, oh my gosh, yep, I'm reading this cover to cover. I'm not putting it down, but I have not been able to find what the sentence was, but I, I remember what it said. I just don't have it word for word. You said something along the lines of growing up in that culture, you had this unspoken understanding that your purity was your salvation. And that just opened my eyes to that alone. I mean, I could have not even read the rest of the book and sat with that the rest of my life. Like, oh my goodness, yes, that has been what I've told myself for 25 years now. And that alone was so real and exactly what I was experiencing because I did grow up in that culture. And a lot of what you talk about in your book, I remember experiencing that firsthand or watching my friends experience it. And also, I wanted to let you know that I have in the past few days put out this thing on my Instagram about having people submit in what they would want to know or what they would want me to talk about with you. And every single one of the people that responded were women, which blows my mind, but also doesn't, which is a sad fact. So that's kind of how I got into your book. And yeah, I would love if you would give kind of just a background of your upbringing in a culture like that. And I'm curious to know, um, and you don't have to answer this right away, if you feel like you knew what it was doing to you negatively while you were in it. Because if I'm being honest, I don't think that I've ever, until I read your book, which was only like 10 months ago, I don't think I ever thought that it's toxic or that it's bad that I'm punishing myself like this or thinking this about what I just did or what I've done. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just curious if eventually you could answer that question, whether you knew when you were in it that actually this is so shaming and not okay and not healthy. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing, you know, part of your story. Uh, so to to speak to that for a moment, 
this understanding of purity and salvation being the same thing, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, deeply unbiblical. I think you're right that it is something that is felt more by women than it is by men. Not to say that men don't experience plenty of sexual mm-hmm. shame, particularly mm-hmm. those who um, grew up within purity culture. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the way in which purity culture defines women mm-hmm. as pure or impure, good or bad, holy or unholy, lovable or lucky if any good Christian man ever loves them, clean or dirty, right? Or even the way that society talks about you as a good girl or a bad girl, a take-home-to-mother person or a never-take-home-to-mother person, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these narratives are all about, to go back to your body shame piece, they're about sort of embodied ways of seeing the self, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I am pure, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not, not I, you know, chose to do something that some people think was an unwise decision. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I became impure, whether it's because, you know, I had sex outside of marriage or someone pulled me aside and said, you know, I was wearing the wrong thing and therefore inspired sexual thoughts or feelings in someone else. Mm -hmm. Or I was talking to a boy and he thought it was flirtation and therefore I was leading him on, right? Or I was developing a close emotional relationship with a man and I was told, you know, I'm cheating on my future husband, (laughs) you know? So all of these things are all about who you are. Like, are you the kind of person that is pure or impure? And for women, so much of that has to do with, I think, not just our own sexual thoughts and feelings and choices, but as human beings with bodies, also other people's thoughts and feelings and choices that are thought to be, quote unquote, inspired by our behavior, by our bodies, by seeing our bodies, right? So we can be seen as impure, even if we have never even had a sexual thought or a sexual feeling, right. you know, simply because the skirt that we were wearing that day, you know, was said to have inspired or maybe even just possibly inspired something in someone else, right? Like how, how many women do I remember pulling me aside and saying the men are thinking X, Y, Z because of that skirt, you know? So not only was it not about me, not only was it not about the men, it was about the women's suspicions of the men's suspicions of what is it, you know what I mean? So far removed from me in a way that I think makes it feel impossible to hold on to purity. Yeah. And, And yet there's so much threat associated with losing it. And I think that the level of threat that's associated with losing it is talked about so regularly, right? What happens if you're an impure woman? What happens if you'll never be have a healthy marriage, you know, because you've ruined, you know, the, the chances at a healthy marriage, right? I think that's how it gets tied to this idea of salvation, this idea that, you know, within this binary of pure, impure is also Christian and non-Christian, mm. you know, saved or going to hell. Yeah. You know, seen and appreciated by God or rejected by God who is ashamed of you. 
And I think one of the ways that that happens is simply just out of, you know, particularly in the height of the purity movement, how often purity was talked about. Right. So one of the examples that I use um, to illustrate this to people who weren't raised within the purity movement, who don't necessarily understand this, is that, you know, there are slash were um, two purity themed Bibles. You know, in one of them, you have 60 pages of non-biblical material all about the importance of not having sex before marriage, the importance of staying pure, right? With, with advice like, you know, avoid the horizontal, <laughs> you know, and you've got that in your physical Bible, 60 pages mm-hmm. of the Bible, you know? Yeah. And I think that's just a good illustration. It's just a good illustration of how intensely these messages were brought to young people in general, to girls in particular, and how I think it, it became very natural for many, for many people raised within the movement to see their purity and their salvation as the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it was all that was talked about in my youth group growing up. I think we had maybe four weeks where we talked about how we should handle our finances because teenagers clearly need to know that. And right. then the other 48 weeks were spent talking about why you should not have sex. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. I don't think I'm exaggerating. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. I want to ask you a question. How did they talk? How did they say you're supposed to find, um, handle your finances? What was their advice? Do you remember? The Dave Ramsey method. What was the Dave Ramsey method? What's that? Um, envelopes. You put... You use cash only or only debit card and you put set cash aside for each finance that you have in envelopes and you save the rest. And and also the way that it was talked about was one, I can't remember if it was Dave Ramsey's daughter gave this message or just someone that worked with him. I remember she was a very peppy girl that was, we watched a video of her and she um, was talking about how you could become a millionaire if you do this <laughs> way of finance. Right. So yeah, that, that was a method. <laughs> what, and what were the envelopes? What were the different categories besides tithing? I mean, groceries was one, gas was another, you know, whatever bills you owed. Yeah. Some for fun spending. I don't know. I mean, I, I get it. It's practical. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Right. So, so the reason I ask is this, mm. there's something about sex and sexuality that as a church, and as I would argue, even Um, as a society, we think is different from every other topic. You know, we think that when you talk about money, you should talk about spending some and saving some and making choices, you know, including some for fun, making sure you got your gas, you know, (laughs) like, you know, thinking about God, but not giving all your money to God, you know, um, or to the church. You know, it, it, it's this sort of even-handed approach, whether or not the envelope method works, you know, is a whole other discussion. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not in a position to, to comment on that. But, but my point is, like, it's, it's an even-handed conversation. It's not like hoard all of your money, never right. spend your money, don't touch anything, you right. know, yeah. until all of a sudden you have kids and then spend all your money on your kids, right? That's not... A healthy approach. Mm-hmm. And it's also not like, well, the only alternative if you don't hoard all your money is to spend all of your money like a wild person running around and buying every single thing until you're broke. And yet when we talk about sexuality, we don't talk about it the way we talk about every other topic, mm-hmm. you know, which is 
you know, how do you make healthy, wise, situational decisions? How much money you spend when you are going to school and have student loans that you're, you know, going to have to pay off and et cetera, Mm -hmm. is going to be different than how much you spend when you have paid off all your student loans and you're feeling more confident and more comfortable financially. You know, it is situational, like life. And yet when it comes to sexuality, we somehow think that sex and sexuality is special and different and shouldn't be talked about or treated the way that everything else should. Instead of saying, how do you make a wise, healthy decision with the context taken into account? We say, hoard hoard all your sexual energy. Don't give an ounce of it away because if you give an ounce of it away, there won't be enough you know, for someone else, right? So hoard it, hoard it, hoard it, hoard it, hoard it, shut it down, push it down, you know, don't feel it, don't think about it, don't make choices, don't inspire anyone else to do any thinking or feeling or anything else, right? And then, you know, when you get married, flip it all on like a light switch, you know, as though you'll suddenly have access to it, you know, but that's not how it works with sexuality. It's not like saving money, right? Like you won't have a ton to work with necessarily if you push it down. Because actually what we're doing when we're pushing down sexuality is we are training ourselves not to access certain parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. that in many cases become inaccessible for the rest of people's lives or for a certain number of years as they do the work to deconstruct their sexual shame, to deconstruct their sexual anxiety, to deconstruct their sexual fear, and to develop a healthier relationship, to literally, you know, wipe away the toxic ways in which we learn to think about ourselves as embodied creatures, and particularly as women, then choose which pieces of what we learned after wiping it all away might still be useful, and what pieces need to be gone forever, and what new information that we never learned about in the church, like consent like context, looking at things in their situation. I think it's different to have a conversation about sex with a 13-year-old than it is with a 33-year-old. So, you know, so anyway, it's just, it's just very interesting to me the way in which we approach all these things differently. And, and to answer your previous question, which I, I apologize, it took me a minute to get around to, because I just wanted to comment on all of the other incredible things that you brought up. But you know, to answer your question about whether I knew this was impacting me when I was in the youth group, you know, the answer is largely no. Mm -hmm. I would say that I thought maybe other people were going to be experiencing sexual repression. I might have thought of it then, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but I felt like I was in a different category. You know, when I was shamed and told that my skirt was too short, yeah, I, I took that shame in and felt it in a deep way, but I also resisted it. You know, I remember, I remember one time being pulled aside by a youth leader and told to go back and change clothes and saying to them, you understand that this is really problematic, right? You understand that we're here, you know, with, with all these, all these boys wearing whatever they want <laughs> and that you're telling me that my wearing this pair of shorts, which are, you know, 
I don't know how long they were, but, you know, are like reasonable pair of shorts, not to say that there's any such thing as an unreasonable pair of shorts, Mm -hmm. but, you know, you're telling me that that's going to cause them to masturbate. You know, why are you not talking to them about, you know, their thought life? Not, again, that was where I was at at the time. These days I would say, if somebody's going to masturbate, I'm like not wasting any time worrying about that. But at the time, you know, with where I was at at the moment, you know, I was like, you know, why aren't you talking to them? Why do I have to go back and change clothes? You know? So there was something about like, you know, the resistance that I had at the time that made me feel sort of, sort of, um, like I would be the last person that would struggle with sexual shame and fear and anxiety. You know, I was the troublemaker. I was the one who was, you know, all constantly getting talked to because there was apparently something about me you know, that, that made people sort of tag me as a sexual threat, which in retrospect, I think was actually a lot, a lot of it was my confidence and Mm -hmm. the fact that I had a lot of guy friends and different things like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happened is when I ended up leaving the church in part because of this realization that it had gotten inside of me in a way that was actually for me, life-threatening you know, I won't go into it in any great depth, but you read the book. So you know mm-hmm. that for me, I, I literally ended up almost dying. Mm-hmm. And in my recovery, uh, realized how much my sexual shame that I didn't even know existed. Or, or if I knew it existed, I thought it was like healthy and good. <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I realized that, that I had something in me that was not healthy and good and that it was actually so dangerous that it almost killed me. And that's when I started to really say, I need to make a choice here. I need to choose between myself, my life, my authentic ability to be who I am and everything else you know, the approval of my family, my church community, my, my assurance of God's acceptance of me, my purpose in life, my assurance of salvation. I had to make a choice between those things and I chose myself. And I thought then, because surely these things weren't inside me, that I would now be free to make the kind of healthy decisions that I still stand by people, how great it would be if we could equip people to make instead of teaching them shame, right? I thought I would be able to look at things in context, think about where I was at, you know, Mm -hmm. and make healthy, good decisions. And what I found is that when I actually started to explore sexuality and think about my own sexual choices, that not only, you know, was that shame, fear, and anxiety still inside of me, But now that I was sort of moving toward it, I was actually triggering these almost PTSD-like experiences. You know, um, things were coming out in my body. I was having, I started to have nightmares about people thinking that I was impure. You know, I started to have um, anxiety that would get so great that um, it would come out in my eczema and I would be scratching myself until I bled you know, started to have fear that was so great that even though I wasn't having sex, I was taking pregnancy tests Mm -hmm. to assure myself that, you know, no one would know that I was even considering the possibility of having sex outside of marriage, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was through in many ways, the leaving of the community that um, I learned how much the community lived inside of me. Mm -hmm. And that was the scariest phase of my experience with all of this, because 
I thought that I was free to choose whether or not I, you know, wore those shorts or, you know, accepted and went home and changed clothes or told that woman, no, this is wrong that you're making me do this. I thought that I, you know, was, was, um, independent and autonomous and spirit driven on my own. And what I learned is that I wasn't, Mm -hmm. that I had internalized the voices of people who judged me and shamed me and did not love me. And I found that now I judged me and shamed me and struggled to love me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's an interesting topic. And this is not the only thing that I took away from what you just said. But one thing that you just mentioned was that it was, it was almost made your fault what thoughts were being thought about you or mm-hmm. what, mm-hmm. what you said, the, the possibility of thoughts being thought about you and yeah, shaming you for what I would, I mean, just by hearing your voice or talking to you, I'm sure it was just confidence, (laughs) you know? Um, It's interesting that confidence was, would pose as such a threat in what's supposed to be such a safe, open arms place and all accepting. And that uh, the fear of, I mean, we had a youth group leader and also before I even tell this short story, I would like to stress that even though I'm still figuring out what my thoughts are even on growing up in a culture like that, certain leaders that were in our youth group, I had very close relationships with. I want to believe that the foundation of what was being taught to us was because they wanted us to have this godly, holy life, and they wanted us to be protected and make wise decisions. And I see the benefit of that. But especially after reading your book and just thinking back on everything that I experienced, I see where their messages that they were sending were like doing the complete opposite of (laughs) what I hope their intent was. Um, But we, I mean, there's so many different stories. My first introduction to purity culture, I've got invited to, kid you not, it was called a purity dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I was in the eighth grade. I don't even think I had turned 14 yet because I think it was like first semester. So I was 13 years old. And th- the whole evening started with dinner and talk of what we were going to discuss after dinner. And there was music played about being pure and discussions had about let's draw out a map of what you think is pure and what isn't genuinely had us rank from like the letters A to like G, what we thought was okay. And what we thought wasn't okay. Um, and rank any physical thing that you could do with a guy. And I believe that night there was, this is so messed up when I think about it. And I haven't talked about this in in years, but the woman that was hosting this dinner picked one of us out of the group randomly and had her go take a pregnancy test in the bathroom. <gasps> yes, I'm not kidding. And what? It's mortifying when I think back to it. It's like we are 13 years old, <laughs> you know? Like I was terrified for the girl that got chosen to go into the bathroom and take a pregnancy test. And her message behind that was to let us know how real and how scary going through something like that would be. That's my introduction to purity. Oh, wow. Yeah, that kind of... I have heard a lot of stories, but I have not heard that. Yeah, 
Um, that's, that's just one of them. But so you, you talk about the science behind shame being attached to sex. And I actually listened to um, a podcast interview of yours a couple weeks back where you do explain it. It's the, um, you said the sex shame brain trap. Yes. That thing. It's like where neurons that fire together, wire together, I think. Yeah, that's like, right. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, called hebsaxium. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would you mind, um, explaining that a little bit? I will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first I have to comment on that story. Okay. Um, <laughs> Wow. You you know, something else that really stands out about that story to me, and I feel like this was such a big part of um, my experience Mm -hmm. in the subculture that is evangelicalism in general, Mm -hmm. um, that there are these subtle ways that you are told you could be checked up on anytime. Oh, yeah. You, You are never, you are never alone right? You never know who's around the corner when you're smoking that cigarette. Yeah. You never know. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to tell you that every thought is not your own, you know, so you never know when you're going to be, um, asked the kinds of probing questions where even your thought life will be exposed. You never know when you're going to be sitting in youth group and told to take a pregnancy test in front of the entire youth group. Yeah. And, and I think that those subtle, those little subtle things about you never know when someone's there and, you know, this um, accountability culture of evangelicalism where people are encouraged to, quote unquote, hold each other accountable, which often means, you know, look for ways in which one another are being, um, you know, quote unquote, bad, you know, creates a culture in which, in fact, you might actually be. <laughs> you know, followed if somebody sees your car in an area where they think, oh, are they going somewhere that they shouldn't go? You know? So I think that those types of things are the kinds of things that repeatedly over and over and over again create the fear that I was talking about. Yeah. The fear that, you know, for me, when I, um, was even thinking about sex or talking about the possibility of sex or exploring sexually mm-hmm. made me go, I'm going to get, I'm going to get found out. Mm-hmm. You know, something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. How, how am I going to get found out? Okay. I'm here. I'm across the country. You know, I live in New York now. <laughs> My community, you know, is in the Midwest, but I, I'm going to get found out. How am I going to get found out? Well, I'll, I'm probably going to get pregnant. I'm probably going to get pregnant, you know? And, and created the anxiety that was so great that I that I felt like I couldn't steady my breathing until I took that pregnancy test, you know, or until one of my, you know, interviewees and friends searched her home for recording devices, mm. or until, you know, another one of my interviewees saw the car that was behind her on the on the road as she was going on a date with her fiance after having kissed him and feeling a tremendous amount of shame for even kissing her fiance, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the relief that she felt as that car turned and she realized it wasn't following her. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these kinds of subtle reminders that it's not just you, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that you are being watched and that you will be found out you know, as I think the kinds of little things that turn into the paranoia that I, I sometimes see among my interviewees. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I could trace back the anxiety in much the same way, and I could trace back the shame in much the same way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to get at your question about 
the brain trap, you know, this is all very related. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned neurons that fire together, wire together. That's called Hebb's axiom. It's, um, you know, essentially if two neural circuits, for example, sexuality and shame, I would argue, Mm -hmm. are fired at the same time often enough, eventually firing one neural circuit will automatically activate the other neural circuit. Mm. And I believe that in the purity movement, we are taught so regularly to experience sexual fear, to experience sexual shame, to experience sexual shaming, you know, um, to experience sexual anxiety, that eventually these things become connected. So think about that feeling that you felt when she was taking that pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. the way in which your heart beat and the way in which you were afraid for her and the way in which you connected mm-hmm. in that moment, sexuality and fear, sexuality and being watched, sexuality and threat, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then, you know, that happens again when you're pulled aside and told you're making the boys, you know, you're a stumbling block to the boys pathway on God because you're talking to them in a flirtatious manner or what we deem a flirtatious manner or wearing the wrong thing, you know, or you see someone else gossiped about behind their back, you know, for the same thing. All of these moments, all of these little things are connecting shame and sexuality Mm -hmm. so that eventually a brain trap is set And those things become connected. And unless we do some deep work, inextricably so. So that later, when you actually are inviting sexuality to unfurl, (laughs) you know, when you're saying, body, I give you permission to wake up. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you often don't just wake up sexuality. You wake up shame. Mm. And it's something that, you know, to your question previously about whether or not you're aware of it when you're in the community or not, you know, think, I think a lot of people aren't because we just, first of all, we, I think, don't know what's normal and what's not normal, right? So what we're growing up with, we just assume is normal. Um, and, and if it's normal, then, you know, then what's wrong with it? You know, if there's no alternative, right? Yeah. Or if the alternative is, is sinful and terrible, so oftentimes when you're within those communities, you um, might even be following the rules, quote unquote, you know, and, and not thinking about things and not having those feelings. That's certainly not true of everyone, but for some people it is. Yeah. Um, so for those people, you know, often it isn't until our sexuality or our full expression of our selfhood, I would argue, becomes uncontainable. Mm-hmm that we start to experience the shame actively. You know, once it's uncontainable, then we see, we see the, the shame triggers because, because the sexuality is starting to emerge. And for some people, that doesn't happen until they get married. Yeah. And for some people, that happens, you know, when they are still within the purity culture and some people, it happens after leaving. It's interesting. So I actually have a background in purpose. And I wrote a a curriculum or was the lead writer of a curriculum on how to find and follow your purpose. Mm. And one of the things that we did is we worked with a lot of college students. And there was one exercise that we had people do where they were um, instructed to 
we called it mining their past. They were instructed to think about all their family influences. What are the ways in which your family um, not just talked about work or talked about career or talked about job, but demonstrated work, career, or job? You know, how did your, how did your parent come home at the end of their work day? Were they happy? Were they angry? <laughs> were they frustrated? You know, what did they talk about? Um, you know, et cetera. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is I eventually had to write into the curriculum that that activity, you, you if you're a professor and you want to lead the, the curriculum for your class, that that activity should not be led for any students until they're at least a sophomore in college. Mm. Because I found that first year college students were just too close. Mm. They were just too close. They couldn't, they didn't have the distance to be able to say, you know, when my parent came home, they, they, you know, demonstrated X, Y, or Z about work by their facial expressions or by their choices or by their, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were coming out of a context of this is normal. This is the way it is. There are no alternatives. So they were still too close to home to be able to evaluate home. Yeah. They were too close to it to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I find that that's often the case for people when they're in purity culture. You know, certainly some people start questioning purity culture while they're still within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, it can be quite difficult it can be quite difficult. You know, oftentimes we need to take a step away before we can say, gosh, how did my dad coming home angry and talking about, you know, how much his boss disrespected him and so on and so forth affect me? Mm -hmm. You know, Hmm, that's interesting. Let me think about that. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a little while to be able to say that. And likewise, it takes a little while to say, how did continuously being shamed or watching people be shamed, you know, for 25 years or whatever it is, impact me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so sometimes these things, um, you know, reveal themselves uh, slowly. Um, and sometimes they come all at once. Yeah. I definitely think that it did take me removing myself from, I mean, my hometown. I'm, I'm also from the Midwest like you are. Um, and moving away to Nashville, 700 miles away, it, it really did take doing that to open my eyes to, wait, actually, maybe this isn't normal. And actually, oh my gosh, they're, they are teaching these things simultaneously together. Hmm. Even if they're the shame, even if it's a hidden message, even if they're not directly saying whatever it is that could, that ignites the feeling of shame, they're hinting at it. And um, it just blows my mind because I mean, I just turned 25 a month ago. My brain just became fully developed. (laughs) So (laughs) being told those things and I, I love hearing the science behind it. I mean, it's, I don't like that, that, that shame and sex can in our brains be related. Um, and if you think of one, you think of the other, I don't like that, but no wonder because you're being taught all this when your, your brain isn't even fully developed and uh, it's just wild. But, um, so what did that look like for you when you started to, I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit, having a ton of fear and anxiety and feeling like, oh, I'm, I still need to prove that I'm still pure. I still have that or I 
I'm not pregnant or, you know, whatever it was, was there an aha moment for you? Because I think in my experience, um, not even knowing that it's not normal to shame myself for whatever it is that I've thought or done or experienced or whatever it might be as far as sexuality goes. I mean, it's not healthy. It's scientifically, it's, it's weakening me or it's, it's causing me to go into a panic attack or it's causing me to break out in hives or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's only having a negative impact on my health because our spirit, I believe our spirit and our bodies, they are connected. So mm-hmm. um, for you, what was that aha moment? Like, oh, actually this isn't healthy for me to be thinking these things at the same time. Like I want to do whatever with this person, but I can't do it without having a panic attack. You know, when was it for you that you realized there's got to be a different way to approach this. Like, how do I break free from experiencing all this anxiety and fear and shame when I am also experiencing sexuality? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I had, when I left evangelicalism, I was in the early days of life in, in a very liberal, liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. And so the question of whether there was something wrong with me was not up for debate. You know, <laughs> you know, my, my peers, you know, I, I had a boyfriend. Um, it was not a secret among our close friends that we were not having sex, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or that there were some issues around that. <laughs> and, um, and I, I really got the impression from my secular community that, that there was like just something really wrong with me, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And so the question of whether there was something wrong with me or not was not up for debate. The, the question of whether I could heal or not was the question that for me was really up for debate. So I, I spent, I spent five years or so, um, trying to pull sexuality and shame apart from one another. Mm -hmm. And sometimes more successful, sometimes less, was never able to sleep with that boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, we were together, you know, off and on for the for five years. Mm-hmm. But what ultimately ended up being the great hope for me was when I called up my girlfriends who I grew up with in my youth group mm-hmm. that I was still in relationship with. And I started to tell them about the shame and the fear and the anxiety and the PTSD that I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And the incredible thing that happened is that all of my friends in the early days, you know, the people who I was most intimate with, who I most trusted, revealed the same experiences. Mm -hmm. And some of them were still evangelical. Some of them had not had their first kiss until marriage. And yet here we all were you know, having this very harmful idea about ourselves Mm. that was making relationship with our partners and with ourselves, you know, feel, um, feel impossible sometimes and making us feel, you know, like there was something deeply damaged, (laughs) you know, you know, and that we would never be healthy and we would never be able to have a healthy relationship. And, So when I was 26, so this was, you know, about five years after I left the church, when I was 26, I actually moved back to my hometown. 
Mm-hmm. And I called up all the girls I had grown up with in youth group, now adults, over a 10-year span. So not just the people I grew up with, but their sisters and you know their friends. And everybody who was living in the area or who I could get a hold of at the time, I went out and I did interviews with over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. And that year, uh, half of the people I spoke to told me stories of startling sexual shame and fear and anxiety and PTSD-like experiences. I suspect that more of them were experiencing that, right? Um, But this was early, early, early stage. This was way before we knew there was a thing called purity culture even. You know, we're talking 15 years ago. And then that realization that there were that many of us in my youth group is what began what then was, um, it's become 15 years of interviewing people who were raised you know, in, in many different purity cultures, because I would argue that there are several purity cultures, not just in evangelicalism, but certainly many other religions are purity cultures and some, um, you know, other cultures. But, um, but predominantly, and, and, and I spoke with a lot of people who were raised in other kinds of evangelicalism, um, you know, internationally or who were raised, you know, in, in the black church or who were raised in, you know, other, other there's so much segregation in, in the church life in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the group that I really focused on the most was um, was this group that represents 20% of the country, mm-hmm. which is white evangelicals mm-hmm. um, who created this purity movement that, you know, was built upon the foundation of purity thinking and purity culture, I would say, broadly speaking, um, and sexual and gender control that is often global and that has certainly saturated our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and really looked at basically what happens when we look at this population for whom this messaging was developed, first developed, although this messaging um, spread well beyond that population in very intentional and strategic ways, mm-hmm. often tied to federal and state money. Um, But if we look at this population who was just utterly doused in this toxic messaging, you know, can we understand not just how the evangelicals are experiencing this, but how we all are taking in some degree of toxic messaging around um, around gender and sexuality, because we we don't have a healthy approach, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to to. to sexuality, broadly speaking, I would say, right? So, so the book really talks about the experience of, um, of people who were raised within evangelical, American evangelical purity culture, and particularly um, white women, and people who were raised as girls who have since transitioned. And, you know, some folks are members of the LGBTQ community. Some people experienced sexual violence. Um, there's so many things that intersect with this. Mm-hmm. And and that's really the journey that the book documents. And then my journey since the book came out has really been about all the other people who are touched by purity um, ethics, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, really working to, um, to break free together, if you will, right? By saying, how does this show up in an intersectional way? How does this, sh- how does this overlap? and intersect with race? How does this overlap and intersect with um, colonialism? How does this overlap and intersect with sexual violence? 
Um, you know, there's so many things that this touches and, and that has been kind of the continuation of the journey and the work, um, that I'm doing through my nonprofit is really about, you know, bringing us all together to do this kind of deconstruction work that starts with sexuality, but really challenges us to, to question so, so much about the norms of our lives. Yeah. And would you mind um, sharing? I mean, you, you just said like, that's what you're doing is starting with sexuality in your nonprofit, but then um, expanding beyond that. Um, but what does that look like? So do you, um, do you travel with it and go and hold, you know, seminars or um, group studies? I mean, how, how does your nonprofit work? Yeah, we've, we've done a number of different things, but where we're at now is I really have heard from people that they need community more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so I do a number of things. One is I do one-on-one coaching for people, which I think, you know, that's where a lot of people are at. You know, they really need one-on-one support. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm at the early stages. I I need to, I need to um, move on this, but I hear a lot from people that they want to meet one another virtually. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start organizing, I think, monthly Zoom calls where we can do coaching as a group so that people can not only, you know, hear from me, but can hear from each other, which I think is is such a, a major part of the healing process. And then the nonprofit, um, you know, what we're doing is we, we used to be traveling around the country and working to, um, working with churches to create kind of purity culture story exchanges. How do you allow people, um, to, to experience, um, the vulnerability that we want to experience in a church, but for many of us has never been possible because we know it will be a non-judgmental space where we come with questions and not answers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did a lot of that working with churches, but but I'm actually moving away from that right now and moving into creating a toolkit based on what we were doing with churches that will equip people to be able to do this work themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so how can you go through some of this deconstruction work, start to do your own personal healing, which is necessary before you really come into a vulnerable community. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then open it up to your community and um, you know, have four or, friend, four or five friends over for dinner and host your own purity culture story exchange and begin to build a support system for yourself you know, in, among your people. Um, which for a lot of people is not something that they have. It sounds like for you, um, and I know this is true for myself as well, the key to healing or even being able to start that process of healing is not keeping it silent. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. I would say that was the common denominator in all of the responses that I got. Um, yes, we have to be with one another. Yeah. Yeah. The name of the nonprofit is break free together. You know, the, and, and that is a, that is actually in many ways an answer to the title of my book. So the book is Mm -hmm. pure inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Yeah. And the, um, the publishers and I talked a lot about whether it should be how I broke free or how we broke free. Mm. And we ended up going with I because 
the reality is, is that many people have not broken free from the sexual shame and the fear, you know? Um, And, and yet the idea that it was just me (laughs) when actually, you, you know, the book details the real journey, which was a journey of coming to others and engaging in this incredibly intimate exchange that is what led to my healing. Um, you know, and, that, and that's why I decided that the organization, I wanted to make sure that this concept of together was front and center, because I actually think that's the only way that we heal, by coming out of silence, yeah. you know, and by coming into community. And, and that looks different for everybody. So, you know, so one of the other things that we did with, our, with the nonprofit in the past is, for example, we had a postcard uh, exchange, and that's on, you can find that on the Instagram page, the Break Free Together Instagram page. People sent in postcards or created postcards at live events mm-hmm. where they shared their story in a way that was anonymous. So, you know, they mm-hmm. didn't have to tag their social ID. They didn't have to tell their friends. They didn't have to tell their family, yeah. you know. Um, you know, so there's, so there's, that's one level, right? Can you write it down for others? Just a short version, you know. Um, coaching, can you just, can you just open up to one person, right? A group call, can you just open up to, you know, a small group of people who you don't know, who, who will get it because yeah. they've been there too, you know, yeah. you know, and then I think that the, the um, purity culture story exchange, the dinner is almost like a next level. It's like, okay, what if you bring it to your people, <laughs> you know, whether you decide to do a Zoom dinner, you know, because your people are around the country or are you really bringing it to your, to, you know, four or five people in your hometown, you know, mm-hmm. that you can, that you can start to build a, a team of resource with. And, and that's, and that's really what I'm trying to get people into. I'm trying to get people into spaces where they are not alone and where they know that they're not alone. Yeah. I think it's really cool that for you, the healing process looked a lot like the journey to writing your book. And now your book has ignited everyone that has read it. I hope it's ignited their healing process, which I think is really cool. I just want to tell you, thank you for being the person to not be silent and um, for sharing what you found in your breaking free of the silence. And so um, that's half the work, in my opinion, is actually getting it out and like being aware that that's yeah. not, that that is the way that it was and that it actually isn't good for you it's not okay oh. well i appreciate you coming out of silence you know the the fact that you're doing this podcast is is very very brave particularly you know you heard my story i it took me a very long time to become mm-hmm. public yeah. um you know i i actually started two blogs that and grew audiences are talking about what we now would call purity culture before mm-hmm. that terminology existed. Yeah. Um, and then and then deleted them because mm-hmm. it was hard. It was hard for me to come out publicly. It was hard for me to put it out there in a public sphere. I was constantly questioning myself. I was constantly self-doubting. And, you know, one might say that 12 years of interviews, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might not have been necessary for this book, that maybe I didn't need to take 12 years to write it. Um, and I think that part of that was about my coming into the confidence to be able to have a voice. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm very impressed that you are in an earlier stage of your, 
deconstruction, you know, and that you are so quickly coming into voice. It's, it's really inspiring to me to see so many people. But, you know, the, one of the ways that that's enabled is by other people coming into voice, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's interesting, like even between when I got my book deal and when the book came out, there was a marked shift in readiness. Um, I got my book deal before the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, when the book came out, we were talking as a culture about sexual violence much more than we had been. And connected to that, we were talking about gender. We were talking about sexual coercion. You know, mm. we started talking about sexual violence in the church. You know, Me Too became Church Too, became Progressive Change Church Too, became Black Church Too. You know, we were having a lot of discussions. And, and I think that, I think that that, you know, uh, was one of the, um, one of the doors that really opened, allowing for us to talk about purity culture, which is so connected to all of those things. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's been interesting to see the, and then of course, you know, in the, in the time since the book came out, there has been just a proliferation of voices as well. So it's been, it's been really, it's been really inspiring and incredible. And, you know, the part of me that is still 15 years ago, (laughs) starting this journey being like, my friend who I grew up with experienced this too. If there are two of us, maybe there are three. If there are three of us, maybe there are four. You know, if it's my youth group, maybe it's a couple of youth groups. If it's a couple other youth groups, maybe it's the whole country. If it's the whole country, maybe it's the whole world. Mm. You know, that, that was such a long unfolding. And I feel like now, you know, now there are enough of us out there that we can find each other so much faster. You know, you don't have to go through the same investigative process. You know, you, you can put your voice out there and people will will see you <laughs> and respond and say, you know, and say, you know, you're speaking, you're speaking my story or telling my story. And, um, I wish that I had had, yeah. And, and even when I was putting out the blogs earlier in the day, you know, people were responding, people were saying, yeah, 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 that's me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but, it, but it was, it was so early that I was just so afraid. And, um, and so, so keep on telling your story and the more that you have these conversations, I, I guarantee, you know, it will open up more conversations and it will bolden, embolden more people to share their stories. And, um, and that's, I think, the only way that any of this changes. Yeah. Man, that was a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was. If you like what you've heard and want to support this project, if you're streaming on Spotify, it'd be amazing if you'd follow the podcast and download each episode as you stream them. If you're listening on the podcast's app, please give the show a five-star rating and it will help out immensely. Most importantly, of course, share these episodes with the people that you know. Theme song and audio production by Tip Frank, podcast artwork by Sierra Scott, Lydia Massey, and Kinsey Maroney. I appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to this. Until next time.